Welcome to the CFO Playbook, where we bring you insights and strategies on how the many obstacles facing the heads of finance functions internationally are being tackled. I'm your host, François Bodnos, the UK content lead at Soldo. In each episode, we help you grow your team, your company, and yourself. There's an early scene in the Wachowski's seminal The Matrix, where the traitorous character Cypher is eating a steak. He muses that he knows the steak isn't real, and yet it's juicy and delicious. I couldn't help but think of that scene when I spoke to our guest this week, Kevin Ben Musa. Kevin is the CFO of Aleph Farms, a cultivated meat startup. Instead of slaughtering the animal, you can grow meat from cell cultures. It's steak, but not as we know it. If it sounds unconventional, well, I suppose innovation is often a little bit unconventional. As for Kevin, this is his first sojourn into the world of pre-revenue startups. His resume contains household names like Nestle and Vitacoco. Aleph Farms, he notes, presents different challenges. In the episode, we discuss profitability, growing a finance team, transitioning from a corporate space to a startup one, and disaster planning, specifically the fascinating question whether there is a finance equivalent to doom scrolling. So let's get into it. Enjoy, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on whatever medium you prefer. Hello and welcome to the CFO Playbook Podcast. I'm your host, Fran Bardenhorst, and I am very happy to be joined today by Kevin Ben Musa, the CFO and Executive Vice President at Aleph Farms. How are you, Kevin? I'm great. Good to be here. How are you, Fran? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. Uh, it's the typically sort of drizzly British day. Uh, where are you uh, calling in from? I'm currently based in New York City. Uh, we just opened a smaller office here at Aleph in the Meatpacking District uh, downtown. Have you been living in New York City for long? Yeah, actually, uh, I've been in the city for close to 20 years at this point. I'm from France originally, but came to the U.S. Um, you know, almost 20 years at this point. Yeah, and, and been in the city for uh, almost uh, 17 years of those 20 years. Were you in New York City uh, for the full duration of the pandemic? Or were you one of the, uh, those New Yorkers who went like upstate to get away from it all? I wish I could have. Uh, no, no, I got stuck here in uh, in the city. We were in Manhattan in a uh, relatively small apartment with uh, my wife and kids. So we had the joy to go through the pandemic this way. And, and I remember those joyous and glorious days filled with Zoom and kids in the background and uh, and all the good stuff around it. That, that was fun for sure. I was in the exact same. I was in a, I was in a studio apartment for most of the, the first two years of the pandemic. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm right there with you. But we'll touch on the pandemic a little bit later, actually. I'm, I'm sure you're very excited to, to talk about that more. But yeah. So first off, I have to ask, you know, cultivated meat. Tell me about that. It's a, it seems to be such a new and exciting space. What is it for our listeners? The cultivated meat is an um, animal-based product. So we essentially uh, create meat from cell, from live animals, in a uh, contained environment. And we're able to essentially produce a piece of meat of steak out of that. So that's what cultivated meat. So if you think of it as, you know, as we used to farm uh, animal, and that's what conventional farming is, we are now able to farm cells in a way and create uh, animal-based product this way. I hesitate to call agriculture a problem to solve, but I mean it, it's fascinating to see the the new new ways of thinking that that are emerging around you know animal products and animal agriculture. It's a very exciting space to be in, I can imagine. 
Absolutely. It is definitely quite fascinating if you think about novel foods, food technology, and, and what's involved behind this. And we really think, uh, you know, we could be a, a complement to the meat industry and, and could, frankly, uh, as part of our missions, uh, be part of the solution in some of the issues we're facing, right? Not only around food security, obviously, today, a lot of discussion around that, around sustainability, uh, around climate impact, which we think cultivated meat could really uh, be a solution for. Before I was preparing for the podcast, I, I looked at your history a little bit. You have this um, amazing track record in terms of the companies you've worked for. I mean, like PepsiCo and Nestle. You've spent some time with Bear Stearns. These are you know real legacy brands, legacy firms. You know brands in many respects that I kind of grew up with, like around me. So yeah, it's amazing to have that kind of global impact. How have you found that transition from you know these these instantly recognizable established businesses to something like Aller Farms, which is in this, not just like a newish business, but also just in a completely new space. How is that for you? No, absolutely. It's a change, right? Um, so, you know, if we take a step back, I've started, as you said, in, in some of the, the traditional names, uh, whether on the banking, financial industry side at Bear Stearns, but also grown a lot and, and spent a lot of my time in my career throughout the big names in the food and beverage space. Um, I think this allowed me to really get the, the, the training um, and, and really the understanding of how business works, uh, how all the functions are interconnected in a big and large organization, in also the discipline, especially as a, as a finance um, executive to understand how to manage the multiple facets of, of, the, of the CFO function, right? As you think about cash management, obviously, as you think about uh, accounting, obviously, but strategy, financial planning, uh, and more business-like operation and focus area of the function. And I think, you know, switching to Aleph uh, was something that was long in the making, I would say, uh, because I've started early on in, in very large conglomerates, and I've always had a knack for maybe smaller type environments. Uh, where I thought I could, you know, excel more. And if you see my evolution, I was able to go from those large environments to smaller, mid-sized companies such as Vatacoco, uh, which was by no means a small company, right? It was quite a large um, firm, but still yet uh, much smaller than the Pepsi or the Nestle of the world. And then after that, uh, went into Aleph, which was in a way my um, my gateway to something a bit more entrepreneurial which I've never had uh, the opportunity to do before. And, and I thought this would be uh, you know, a great opportunity at this time in my career to leverage my experiences in the larger setting and bring that with me to help like a younger company grow and scale up. What is an example of, of something that you've taken from a larger, more corporate setting that you think businesses like just generally younger businesses often overlook or might not know about? I think there's one or two things I can point out. You know, as, as a young startup or young company, uh, whether Aleph or other similar type company, you want to do many things, right? And I think the vision is, is just amazing. The promises of what you could be achieving from a technology standpoint, from a business standpoint is really high. And I think at time, everybody's really running a thousand miles an hour in all type of direction to really try to tackle a big opportunity. And I think that's where, you know, someone with my experience can come in and can help maybe uh, help the team focus in the right priorities, uh, help bring a little bit of the discipline needed on the execution side that can really become and help the organization become more efficient, right, in, in achieving goals. And I think to me, that that's one of the, the big areas where currently I'm spending my time on, you know, working with, with my CEO and my, and my other peers uh, in the different function around really identifying the priorities of the business. 
what are the key milestones we're trying to achieve as a group and how do we define picture of success and how do we get there, right? So really mapping out in a way uh, the roadmap to achieve what we need to do uh, as a group. So I think that discipline that you typically, um, you know, go through and acquire in larger setting can really help in smaller businesses and a smaller uh, environment like this. So you talk about the team there a little bit. What is Alice headcount right now? And what kind of trajectory are you on in terms of headcount? And then also more specifically, what is the kind of finance team? What does that look like? How many people are in the finance team with you? So today we're about uh, 150, call it, uh, people roughly at Ale Farms, which we've grown significantly late, uh, last year as we started to fill gaps in a certain area and to bring new capabilities, whether it be on the R&D side, operational side, regulatory side. Um, today, obviously, R&D is still a big component of our workforce, uh, just given the nature of our business. So that's why we're here. And also, uh, to your other point, I think on the finance side, of course, a smaller team than others, but still, you know, quite a few capabilities on the accounting side from day to day, even though we're still proving you today, there's still a lot of volume as you think about invoice processing and working with suppliers and all the things we do. Uh, we also have a small team on the corporate and development side, which is quite important for us as you think about uh, strategy and, and building an ecosystem that we can work for uh, and we can work with as we scale up, right? So I think there's also a big element to that, which is also falling into my function. And today, being the CFO at Aleph, that's also, and we'll talk about it later, one of the reasons I wanted to join this role, it's also to allow me to expand a little bit of the scope of what I do as a CFO, which include not only the typical financial task or activity that would, uh, that would fall under a CFO, but also more business forward, um, let's say, activities such as corporate development, strategy, project management, and working very closely as well with our personal folks um, uh, on this end. It's such an exciting time to be in this space, isn't it? Um, it feels like the CFO role for so long had a very kind of cast iron definition of what it was. And it just feels as if maybe in the last decade or so, it's just completely lost that. And it's, it's continually being reinvented. And it depends on which company you speak to, but like, you know, it's, it's different in each way. Is that something that you think is, is an exciting? Do you think eventually we will kind of communally arrive at, again, like a set definition? Or do you think it's now permanently the way it is? You can kind of make it what you want? I think it, the CFO role, as you pointed out, Fran, has evolved dramatically over the last decade or so. As you would think before, as a CFO being the you know traditional bean counter and the, and the policymaker within the company just saying no to things and really focusing on accounting. I, th I think this definition of CFO has really, really changed today. I view myself you know, as part of that new generation of CFO that are much more um, business focused and then trying to be an enabler for a business and as an organization and leverage the finance function as a tool to really enable the company to achieve what it needs to achieve. You know, as I think about the CFO role today, not only the basics needs to be there, obviously, but you have to go beyond the number to be successful, right? So as you have to understand really, you know, the industry, you have to have an understanding of all the function throughout the organization to really be a sound, um, I would say, a sounding board, if you will, for, for your CEO and for your, all the peers throughout the function. And, and I think that the more uh, knowledge that a CFO can have, not only on the industry, but also on the business itself, whether it be the technology, the operation, and, and everything else, the more effective the CFO can be. And, and you see now more and more, um, you know, today, 
whether it's in large setting or much more setting, CFOs that tend to be more and more like that with a wide area of experience that are not only in one company and in one function, but have touched banking, that have touched capital market, that have touched strategies, maybe at times operated businesses themselves. So I think you see that a lot more these days. And I think that's what makes a successful CFO in this current environment, where it becomes much more volatile, much more uncertain, especially these days. That volatility and uncertainty is an interesting one, especially where so in the UK, um, there's a lot of sort of economic uncertainty right now, but like it, it's quite global in scope. I would say it like I, I would imagine in the US there, there are sort of economic volatilities too, still stemming from the pandemic and so on. One of the interesting, I guess, tensions that are uh, occurring here in the UK, and I'd be interested to hear about what it's like in the US is, you know, People, workers, uh, employees are under more pressure in terms of what we call the cost of living here. So, you know, housing's gotten more expensive, energy's more expensive. Is that something that you know you think CFOs should think about, know about, and consider? Uh, obviously, there is a natural tension between like what you can do in terms of remuneration and stuff like that. But are there ways that companies can can support people through tough situations like we are currently facing? No, absolutely. I think the CFO, you know, needs to be very close to the, you know, people organization, right? So I think about people is the HR organization, the, the people in general. I think there's a big element where the, the CFO could play a big role in setting the agenda on that regard. You know, as you said, I think it's, it's a balance to not only protect the employee, because at the end of the day, employees are probably the most important asset that the company can have, right? So you want to make sure not only you attract the right talent, but you also can develop and retain those talents. So, and, and that's, by the way, a topic that I faced myself as a CFO a lot, especially during COVID time and pandemic time and tough times, as to how do we make sure we keep the base employee that we need to operate that business? And how do we make sure, um, you know, we, we try to strike the balance between keeping our fiduciary duty um, to the success of the company and to our shareholder, but at the same time, making sure that we do what's right about our employee. And it's a fine line, right? Uh, so at times it comes with, uh, you know, compensation is one tool, but you can have all the things. And especially today, as the work environment has evolved, there's all the things um, that can be appealing to employees aside of the compensation itself. Think about um, what they do on a day-to-day basis, the exposure they could get as an employee, the impact they can make on and on a on a business on a company. So being really active, listening to what employee wants is also a big element to their happiness and to make sure we we can provide what they need to grow as an individual within the within the company. So I think you know there's various ways to do that, but of course as the CFO is always a uh, a fine line to walk because at the end of the day you have a PNL to manage and you have cash to uh, to, to manage and, and finances to balances, right? Yeah. But I think employee aspect and the whole HR um, aspect of things within the company is crucial, and the CFO has definitely um, a role to play into that. So. That's an interesting point that you talk about, like the sort of this blending, almost not quite blending of functions, but yeah, you would traditionally think that HR and and CFOs are are very kind of separate. But you know, it definitely seems like again there is much more of a of a conversation at least happening between those two functions than than maybe previously. Absolutely, and, and I will tell you this. I mean, especially in this environment where. Uh, you know, you go into a younger company, you, know, you need people, you need capabilities, you need to attract talent. And I think there is a definite partnership that needs to happen between the CFO and the head of HR 
as you think about um, bringing the right capabilities under the right constraint and limitation from a budget point of view, right? So I think there's a lot of exercise that I'm myself doing, um, you know, a lot of the time we we go through that obviously every year as part of the budget settings, but it's also a conversation you have throughout the year as to, okay, how do we make sure we have the most efficient organization possible, but at the same time, allow ourselves to bring the talent and the capabilities needed to make sure we're successful. Right, because we cannot be successful as a company if you don't have the right talent with you and the right skill set to really address the gap that you have as an organization. So, so I think to me, I'm going out always to it is critical to have a partnership and, and to not say no, but to say, okay, but right. So yes, I want to make sure we can allow for this or that, whether it's uh, you know hiring new person or increasing the budget or whatever the case may be. But let's try to do it under this constraint. And that's always the approach I tell my team, um, you know, as a CFO and, and as a finance function, I want us to be enablers, right? I don't want us to be the police. I don't want us to be the naysayer. I want us to make sure we work with the other function, make sure they understand the situation in the broader context, and make sure we can be um, find middle ground so we can really allow them to do their best work possible and, and being able to achieve the goal they have for themselves. And we can give them the right resources to do so given the constraints we have. So that's really how I approach things in general. One other aspect obviously also of being an exciting kind of growing business and especially one in a space where, you know, we don't really know how far this could go. Like it's uh, almost like a brand new category of, of industry is how do you think about profitability? Is Aleph profitable yet? And if they're not, what is the sort of like trajectory that you're kind of plotting ahead? And how do you think about like that? Of course. So profitability is always a big topic. Um, I mean, for us, we're still a pre-revenue um, uh, company, um, like uh, like pretty much all the company in the sector. Uh, the reason being, you know, we're working through um, getting regulatory approval, and then once we get our first regulatory approval, uh, which hopefully will will happen, uh, you know, very soon this year, uh, then we'll be able to start commercializing product, and at that point, we'll be able to start generating revenue and and, and profit uh, along the years. Um, you know, profit is definitely a big component of us and, and of, I would say, any company that scales up. I think that's part of the big challenge as we think about the scale up and, and the cost reduction. That's an industry that is nascent. That's an industry that will need, um, of course, a lot of infrastructure setup and a lot of capital deployment. And that's one of the area that we've been really working hard at as to how can we make sure we can produce to masses over time and over the years at a, at a much reduced price. So not only it makes sense and it is economically viable as a business model, but it's also a product that has a future as well with consumers, right? Because even though we want to place the product, which will be ultimately premium, right? If you think about the overall, you know, meat sector, I think, you know, our product, similar to other alternative protein products, uh, will be placed um, a bit more premium um, than that the average, uh, let's say, product or meat. Uh, but there's still an element of being able to reduce the cost to make sure we have the right price point for the consumer and to make sure this is a business model that is economically viable for us as well. And it's interesting because you talk about, you know, let's say however long into the future your products are in every supermarket in America, it's kind of reached that mass scale. How much do you kind of think about that? Or is it something that you just kind of try to take it by day to day? How do you kind of balance like, because yeah, it's, it's a company that can go so far. How do you kind of balance with like that future 
looking ahead, but also kind of not getting too carried away with yourself? It's an art of making sure you have the vision and you work on the long game, but at the same time, still laser focus on what's ahead uh, in the immediate term, right? So I think this this is really like the the art of, of what we're doing every day, which is, especially in my role as a CFO, being able to talk uh, the vision, the long term, and, and sort of the long range planning from a strategic point of view and how things look like when we're at scale, to your point, and what type of a margin we can achieve, what type of an EBITDA margin we can achieve, what are the cash flow profile over time as we get scaled and how we get into the mass retail over time uh, in the future in the US and globally. So that's one aspect of it. But at the same time, being able to articulate what is it that we're doing today pragmatically to get to that point, right? So obviously it's a roadmap, right? So if you think about you know the horizon of uh, seven to 10 years, there is definitely things that will need to go to happen. And we, we'll, we know that there's a sequence of events and a sequence of activity that we need to achieve before being able to get there. And we have goals for ourselves in the near term, midterm and long term. And that's how we approach things. So we have a very finite vision about where we want to go. And we have a good sense of what needs to happen to get there. And that's where we're staying focused today on execution. One of the questions I always love to ask uh, CFOs, and there's always a different answer, is what is a metric or a KPI that you find yourself obsessing over or you know looking at almost every day? Is there is there like an example that kind of really jumps out to you? In our case today, um, since we're, we're pre-revenue, so I'm not going to necessarily th- look at financial metric per se. So it's more like specific goal in terms of cost reduction, in terms of scale-up, in terms of capex. So those are the type of things I'm looking at in the specific metrics that are inherent to what we're trying to do as an industry and as a sector today. If I put myself into previous role, which are more like, say, traditional type businesses, uh, definitely revenue growth and EBITDA margin are the two metrics that I was really laser focused on, right? And for two reasons, because from a company, that's how you measure the health of a company, revenue growth. How much can you grow over time? What's your market share? And how do you sustain that over time, whether through innovation or through acquisition or whatever the case may be? And then how profitable are you along that journey, right? So that's why EBITDA margin and gross margin are very important. So I think those are the two or three key metrics that I've always, always watched for um, you know, throughout my career, which has really net revenue growth, gross margin, EBITDA margin, to not only monitor the health of the business from a ramp-up point of view, but also make sure you do that in a sustainable way because you want to make sure you're growing profitably. That's always something that has stuck with me over the years. And I've seen play out and I've seen great businesses, great startup, great companies that are growing up and have had tremendous revenue uh, runway, tremendous growth, but had no real path to profit. And we've seen a lot of those cases, especially the last year or two, uh, where we've seen um, a company fail because of that, right? Because, you know, expectations are very high from a, from a growth point of view, which is great because growth is the key element of, of any company. But at the same time, investors start to realize, hey, beyond the growth, we need to understand the profitability because at the end of the day, you know, a business needs to make money. And that's also a key element that at times, especially maybe the, the last two or three years, that's a concept that would perhaps put on the on the back burner, but I think profitability has become back more a front and center, especially as you think about uh, investors' expectations today. It definitely feels like it's returned to like a more healthy orbit. Uh, you know, I, like I, I think you can definitely kind of be way too old school about it and fixate on profit way too much. But I think there was definitely an element of it being kind of 
ignored for too long. You know, I, I think of instances like WeWork and things like that, where, yeah, it was sort of just kind of waved away. And it definitely feels like it's just returned to like just a much more stable, like there's still room to kind of maneuver, but like, yeah, that is the aim, which I think is good. I think it's healthy. Absolutely. And what I would say is, look, you know, throughout the discussion is not being profitable right away. It's okay. Right? As long as you have a path to get there, a clear path to get to profit under certain circumstances. So you tell me you have a high growth uh, ramp up and a high growth profile from a revenue point of view, which is great because it's all about um, the, the total addressable market and how big can you be and, and, and what is the, the playing field into which you, you, you are and, and which your company is actually trying to grab share. So that's one big element of it that will drive the value of the company over time. But having a clear path to profitability if you're not profitable today is also very crucial, at least to me as a CFO. And again, it doesn't mean that you have to be profitable today, but you have to demonstrate that it is actually a business model that is economically viable, right? And, and that's and that's what also um, you know any investor would, would want to see. One of the... Uh, I suppose lessons from the past three or four years. Um, none of us, I think, well, I, I suppose some people were expecting a pandemic, but I, I think we were sort of quite ready for it. It's a bit of a shock for many of us. How do you think about disaster planning? I feel like the pandemic was a really good case study and kind of giving us the floor of like how bad things could get in terms of you know everybody having to like be holed up in their homes. Is that something that you kind of now keep in the back of your mind? Like, you know, that is something that can happen? Oh, uh, look, absolutely. Right. I think um, as a CFO, uh, especially that, that's something I, I've learned. Uh, I don't want to say the hard way, but I was very close to uh, this topic during the pandemic time, uh, being a CFO. I think what we learn is you have to be very flexible. You have to manage um, your financial and, and your PL very dynamically. The way you deploy capital, you the you, way you deploy investment, you always have to do scenario planning. I think the level of scenario planning that I've done during the pandemic uh, in my prior role was probably every week or every other week. It was very, very demanding. Where before, you know, you didn't really uh, do that that often. You were to do that maybe, um, you know, a couple of times a year as part of the budget, as part of the forecast. Uh, but then when you become in, a, in an environment that is so volatile and, and so complicated, this is really something that... CFO became so attuned to, you know, what's my cash position? How do I make sure I have enough liquidity at all times to support my operation? What, uh, what could be the backup scenario? What are the, to your point, the, the disastrous scenario? And what are the levers I can pull if those gates happen and have those gates and milestones as well, right? There's a lot of discussion, of course, with boards, with shareholders that ask that all the time. And, and, and the question is, what are you prepared to do if so-and-so goes wrong? You know, what, what, what levers can you pull in case there is a disastrous scenario that comes up? So those are the type of things that you always keep in the back of your head. And look, you stay optimistic. That's my view. I want to stay always optimistic, but I stay cautiously optimistic, right? Which is, I want to make sure, you know, I look at things in the best optimal way as possible and, and ready to spend and ready to support the growth of the company as best as we can. At the same time, making sure we keep some flexibility to adjust and course correct, if need be, throughout the year, depending on the situation. I think this is crucial. And, and every CFO in every company, whether very large or very small, have to, to be prepared to do that today. You made an interesting point there, because like, have you ever heard the term doom scrolling? Uh, no, exactly. What is it? 
Yeah. So did so so did like the, this phenomenon of like you know the, with our endless social media feeds where it's just filled with bad news and you can kind of your mentality can become like very um, affected by it in terms of you 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 kind of view the world um, negatively as it's this you know it, it crazily dangerous place. And I suppose with scenario planning, there is a risk of that too. Like it's almost like a financial version of doom scrolling, where you spend all your time fixating about what's 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 uh, what can go wrong. But then, like you say, you also have to remember like what what can go right. Absolutely, and and I think again, you know, it, 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 that that's a, that's a very interesting point you're bringing here because yes, you can get caught up into uh, that that spiral, if if you will, that negative spiral. But I think to me, I view it as just contingency plan. Right, it is part of my role. It is my fiduciary duty to uh, to the company, to the employee, and to the board and shareholders to make sure we have contingency plan. And and in the event, God forbid, something goes wrong, we not get caught uh, off guard. And and we have plan that we can action at that give us some flexibility to adjust. So I think the word uh, is really to plan for the worst and hope for the best, as we say. That feels like a like a nice note to to kind of start wrapping it up on Kevin. But uh, there are uh, you know a few questions I always like to close on. Um, one is um, mentors. Uh, is there a mentor that really kind of stands out for you and over the course of your career, someone that you learned a lot from? And how do you think about as someone who's more senior now uh, about your kind of mentoring role towards others? Sure, absolutely. Uh, look, I had the chance to to have a, quite a few great mentors throughout my career, which I, I'm still in touch with. I can think of one particularly that always helped me throughout the years. He was my prior boss at uh, at Nestle. I uh, was leading one of the largest divisions as a CFO uh, back then. He's been terrific. I've learned so much from him, and and that's an individual that really helped me think about my career in, in different ways. Thinking about personal goals, how do you le- how do you align personal goals with your personal career, and how do you make sure you always take assignment that makes sense for you and where you think you can add the most value? Um, and I think you know I'm trying to to pay that forward in a way because, like I say, between him and others, I've had a lot of um, great advice along along the way and along my journey and, and throughout my career. And I always try um, to take time uh, out of all everyone's busy schedule, but always to, to be available for people when they reach out and to try to also give the best that I can in terms of advice and, and helping people achieve what they're trying to do in their lives. And then finally, uh, it's a bit of a tricky one, I suppose, but if you can give one piece of advice to other finance professionals, imagine you're in a room and you were forced to condense your wisdom down to one thing that has perhaps maybe worked very well at Aleph or in your career, something that you really made a massive difference uh, to you at the time or the business at the time? I would say maybe one thing, and and that's a piece of advice that I've gotten myself uh, early on, uh, which is don't constrain yourself to, uh, to your specific job description. And what that means is always go beyond what you're supposed to do and really understand what's around you, understand the context and see how can you help others in what they do, even though it doesn't necessarily impact what you're doing today. Because that's how you're going to become the most effective and that's how you're going to bring the most value to the organization as a whole. Right? So this is probably one of the best pieces of advice that I've gotten that really helped me advance throughout my career and, and really show and, and, and demonstrate that you're able to do more than simply what you're here to do. And that's what also helps you and give you an edge as, as you move on uh, in, in your professional life. So that's probably what I would tell people, I guess. Great stuff. 
Gavin Bermusa, thank you very much. It's been a great chat and obviously looking forward to see what Aleph gets up to in the future. I'm going to enjoy my, my cultivated steak in a, in a few years' time, I hope. But uh, yeah, thank you for coming. Thank you. Likewise, it was such a pleasure uh, being here. Thank you, Fran. This show is brought to you by Soldo, the brighter way to manage business spending and expenses. With Soldo, you can control every expense, track spend in real time, automate financial reporting, and then use those insights to fuel your growth. Learn more at soldo.com.